Radio Mano Papachango. of Tangentially Speaking. I'm your host, Chris Ryan. I'm sitting by the Payette River in central Idaho, not far from a town called Stanley. Uh, Amazing spot I found a few years ago uh, out here running from the smoke as I seem to be doing every summer these days. Um... We were on our way to, I think we went to um, the Grand Tetons, but we couldn't see the mountains. It was so smoky. So last minute change of plans, and we ended up uh, coming up this road from Stanley to Boise up through the Sawtooth Range, and uh, it's awesome. It's really awesome back here, so I've been coming back every year. Almost didn't come this year because of the smoke. Uh, I was up in Montana and trying to figure out where to go, and the smoke map looked pretty horrible, and tried to get to Stanley, got blocked by uh, road closure due to fire, not a good sign, but uh, then spent the night uh, camping out somewhere, and the next morning it looked clearer, took another route, ended up getting here, and it's not bad. I don't know, I don't have internet connection, so I can't check the smoke map, see what's going on out there, but I do see blue sky, a little bit of blue sky, that's enough for me. I haven't been in touch for a while, largely that's been because of logistics, um, in and out of service, no Wi-Fi, you know, the usual, um, It's also been because I've been strangely busy uh, doing some really interesting things, uh, which I'll get to in a moment. And then the the third reason, honestly, is that uh, I have two really close friends. I mean, real inner circle type people who I love very much who have both been diagnosed with cancer in the last few weeks and that's kind of knocked me on my ass to be honest um you know it's uh it's weird to be out here uh you know last night I was sitting out here looking down at the river I'm in an absolutely beautiful spot and the water is crystal clear, and the sun was low, and so the water was just glowing with this golden light, and there's a bald eagle flying over, and, you know, the smell of pine trees in the air, and so on. And I I realized that every time I started to ride up a wave of happiness and appreciation and gratitude I would come crashing down on the other side into grief and helplessness and fear and um, 
it was this as if there you know there's a sort of an elastic connection between the good feeling and the bad feeling how lucky i feel and how unfair it is that people i love can't be here with me or 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 with someone else or on their own or whatever just experiencing peace and and contentment <clears throat> and um you know when it's at a distance <clears throat> excuse me when it's at a distance it's easy to you know tell myself that story that well you know yes people are suffering but you know they would want me to enjoy my life while I can and my you know my days of suffering will come and have come in the past and will come again certainly and uh when I'm suffering I don't want anyone else not to be enjoying themselves on my behalf right it's that all makes sense intellectually but on a pre-intellectual level a precognitive level it doesn't and I don't know does everyone feel this way because it feels like to me it, it feels like some sort of primordial um, acknowledgement that we're all in this together you know that if you've read any of my books, you know a big thing, a big theme in these books is that our hunter-gatherer ancestors shared. They were really adamant about sharing. And, you know, part of what Casilda and I tried to argue in Sex at Dawn is that that deep philosophical and and practical and behavioral um, allegiance to sharing extended to sexuality and and raising children and so on and i feel like it it also extends to suffering not that my suffering will relieve any of the weight on my friends shoulders right now but there does seem to be something deeply unfair about having a good time while someone you love is suffering I, I don't know it's it's uh it sucks anyway <clears throat> this episode uh has been in the can for a while uh, I know I keep saying I'm going to release a bunch of them because I have so many and I intend to. And as soon as I finish recording this intro, I'm going to record the intro to the next one. Um, but this episode is with Kyle Kingsbury, one of my favorite people. He is an awesome dude. He's a former UFC fighter, uh, athlete, big, strong, strapping, macho, looking motherfucker 
with the heart of a sweet, sweet man. He is, he's what we should all aspire to be. He, he manages to combine his sort of overwhelming masculinity with uh, an unabashed, unashamed gentleness and kindness and humor and generosity. And uh, yeah, he's an awesome dude. Really love him. To tell you what an awesome dude he is, uh, I, last time I spent any significant time with Kyle, we were in Hawaii on this amazing hunting trip that I found myself invited on at the last minute with a bunch of, um, you know, very kind of hard charging, serious biohacker type guys, um, Ben Greenfield and Kyle Kingsbury, Kyle Tierman was sort of putting it together, uh, Peter Atia. Um, there were some other, other folks on there, like really serious guys, you know? I mean, they probably didn't have a fucking pound of body fat on the whole bunch of them. And then there's me wandering in there as a last minute replacement for, um, Aubrey Marcus because Aubrey couldn't go at the last minute. And so his spot was open and everything was paid for and there's no way to get his money back. So, uh, I found myself invited along and I didn't know until this conversation with Kyle that it was his suggestion that they invite me. Um, so I'm flying around Hawaii in helicopters and, uh, hanging out with these, uh, very interesting people and, and having all these experiences. And the whole time I had Kyle to thank for it and I didn't even know it. And he never mentioned it. That's the kind of guy he is. Awesome dude. Last bit of housekeeping here before I let you go. Uh, I want to let you continue without me to listen to this. Uh, if you're around Boise, uh, today's Wednesday, July 21st. I'm going to release this uh, today. Friday, in two days, we're going to have a get-together in Boise at the Payette Brewing Company. Uh, I think from 6.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. Uh, I don't have the address, but you can look it up. So if you're in Boise or around Boise and you want to come hang out, we're going to do one of these get-togethers. It's very short notice. I apologize for that. But, you know, we thought we were going to be in Wyoming, and suddenly we're not. Um, anyway, so we're going to do this thing. Payette Brewing Company, Friday the 23rd, 6.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. in Boise. Tell your friends. It's a joint thing with Anya Kotz and her Millennials Guide to Saving the World audience and the horror rapport audience so there will be people coming from different angles all of them interesting smart cool people no doubt every time that's that's who comes to these things so uh if those are your kind of people and you're in within striking range i hope you come and uh, we'll see you in a couple of days all right, I am going to play you out with a song that uh, 
really has nothing to do with any of this except that uh, I like the name of the album. Uh, it's called the album is called Beneath This Gruff Exterior. And when I saw that, I just opened my music file and I saw that song and uh, I thought, well, that fits. You know, Kyle Kingsbury, Beneath the Gruff Exterior. There's a heart of gold in that dude. Uh, This is by John Hyatt and the Goners. The song is My Baby Blue. I hope you enjoy this conversation and uh, thank you for your patience with my uh, disappearances and reappearances. I know you're supposed to be very regular about releasing a podcast and uh, you're supposed to do all sorts of things that uh, I never managed to do, but this is another bullshit free episode. I'm not going to ask you for money. I'm not going to ask you for anything. I'm just going to ask you to enjoy this episode, this conversation with the great Kyle Kingsbury. Thanks.
Wow, look at my background. Come on. At least you don't have messed up hair, you know? <laughs> Those days are long over with. <laughs> are you actually bald or you shave your head? I shave, but, you know, I've got like a decent receding. What I didn't want is I didn't want to get the island and yeah. not see it until it was too late, you know? You know, like I figured figure that out from a photo from like three years ago, and I'm like, you've been letting me live a lie. I don't. I didn't want that. Yeah, what is that? That's such a weird thing. Where like otherwise, like intelligent, self aware men, uh, like do the weird comb over, or like really, you think like, can you not see yourself in the mirror? What's going on there? It's. It's a weird kind of illusion that that men are subject to. I don't I don't know what happens there. It's an identity attachment. That's it. You know, yeah. it's like the, the hair the hair it's a part of me. Like I can't you can't let go of something because it's like the the look that you have. It's like holding on to how you look as a 16-year-old. <laughs> I don't fucking yeah. wear those clothes. Thank God I don't dye my hair red. I don't have facial piercings. All that shit's out, you know. You Jesus. can just go yeah. with the flow of life. Dude, if I if I held on to the way I looked when I was sixteen, I would have like zits and braces. You know, I don't want that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and and, and uh, pre ejaculation. I don't want that either. So <laughs> definitely no don't want shit. that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, I I uh, I've always wanted to shave my head. I thought when I was in my twenties, I should have shaved my head so that. I wouldn't then worry about it as I got older and started losing hair. It's like, I know what I look like. I've already been there, you know? And, um, but I never, I never did. And then I was in India, uh, probably 2003, almost, almost 20 fucking years ago. Jesus. And, um, and I, I was uh, with my wife at the time, and uh, we were in India, and I was like, hey, this is the perfect time to shave my head. I'm on, hanging out on a beach in India. I don't have a job. I, nobody gives a shit who I am or what I look like or whatever. And I'm going to shave my head. And she said, oh, please don't do that. And I said, why? She said, uh, in Indian culture, you shave your head when your father dies. And my father was ill at the time, and she's, she was kind of, you know... Like, don't fuck with the juju. Yeah. And, and so I didn't. Um, and, and I still haven't shaved my head. But now I'm just getting bald, so who gives a shit? I'll just go with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend shaving your head in India either, though. I mean, I've got, I was, I was down in Costa Rica with Aubrey for one of our fit-for-service events. And, you know, shaving the head near the equator is a different mm. ball game. You know, when, you're, when your scalp starts peeling, it's like, eh, I don't want old man spots and, and weird shit like that. Yeah, well, I got that anyway, man. You know, Irish skin in 59 years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. maybe that's coming, coming in the mail no matter what. Yeah, exactly. So what's going on? You're, you're in Austin. Everybody's moving to Austin. Is it because of you guys? Yeah, I, I want to take full it? credit for this. Um <laughs> it is funny. I mean, uh, yeah, I came out here about three and a half years ago to work with Aubrey at on it. And, um, Austin was always a cool town, you know, it was really cool. And I think the word was out, you know, people knew about it South by Southwest, you know, some of the bigger events of the year, but it was still just a fun place to visit. And then quarantine hit like a Mack truck. And, um, there was a feel, I guess, you know, obviously that's better known now with Texas saying, double fuck you to the mask rules and shit like that. But, um, 
certainly that feel of a little bit more freedom, having more freedom here. And it's been a huge draw over the last 12, 13 months for Californians and New Yorkers to come to. And it's a great place. You know, it's, it's funny, you know, how this is all played out politically, but, um, the thing that I like is that I don't think we get to have some of the, the harder conversations on the coasts or in the, the purely red States, you know, I don't think that Mm -hmm. they're, they're not salad bowls. You know, you're not getting people from all walks of life that have super wide ranging views on, on, you know, everything from gun control to climate change and in between. And I think um, this can be the place for that, those conversations to take place. Are they comfortable conversations? I mean, is there sort of, are there like rules of the road that people follow? I don't know. You know, it's, 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 I wouldn't say, you know, these, these topics aren't comfortable, plain and simple. You know, they're not, they're not comfortable topics. Politics isn't comfortable for a lot of people unless you're in, you know, your own bubble and you're just bouncing ideas off of people that already agree with you. That's a different scenario. Um, I don't think there's general rules, but I think that there's an opening, you know, and, and certainly it is, it is funny. Like there's, there's kind of a running joke of all these people coming here from the West coast and the East coast that forgot why they left you know, in the first mm. place, like the, like, let's get out of here. They're taking away our freedoms. Let's go to Texas. And then let's make sure that we keep voting the same way and believing the same beliefs about, you know, our, our, uh, government and everything that goes along with that. And it's like, well, it doesn't mean jump sides or, or let the pendulum swing completely opposite. It just means like, let's take a closer look and see why this is happening and, and what's really going on behind the scenes. And, uh, I think there are yeah. people that are open to that conversation. Yeah. It's, You talk about freedom. I feel like one of the major freedoms people are going to Texas looking for is freedom from state income tax. That's a massive one. I mean, I was I remember uh, Tim Ferriss when he was living in San Francisco. I think he tweeted a poll on four reasons to leave California. Like the people Mm -hmm. are too pretentious. Uh, He's tired of hearing about the next startup, uh, state income tax and something else. You know, and it was like, look there's a lot of re- cost housing costs was one of them. It's like, there's a lot of reasons, but fuck it's state income tax. It was state yeah. income tax for me. And I don't make a fucking 10th of what he makes annually. <laughs> That's what it's I'm state saying. income tax. Like let's, let's be fucking yeah. honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a big one. You know, even with people are complaining about property taxes and stuff like that, especially with uh, the housing boom that's going on here right now. And it's like, that's still a fraction of what you'd pay the state every year guaranteed. It's a fraction, especially because the cost of housing, even with a, you know, an economic boom that's happening in Austin. It's like, it's nothing. It's nothing compared to the state income tax. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm in Colorado now. Once again, I was ahead of the wave, man. I left LA before everybody. <laughs> you were probably in your van already just cruising, cruising around town. And you're like, I think I'll just stop here now. Yeah. Yeah. That's about what happened. Now I'm in this little town in Colorado. Awesome little place. Uh, 8,000 feet. Uh, right up, right up next, surrounded on three sides by protected uh, national forest land, U.S. park. Um, you ever been to the Great Sand Dunes National Park in Southern Colorado? I've never. Been, I have a buddy who's coming down to stay with us tonight, who actually lives not far from there. But um, I've never been to Colorado. I, I hate oh. admitting it. I want to go so bad, and I'm actually getting um, my buddy Matt Vincent. He's got like one of those camper shells that goes on the bed of your truck. That's like an accordion. So you always mm-hmm. have your bed in there and you can just throw your gear in the back and go camping. And that's something I've been wanting to do 
just make it more convenient for me to get out with my son and, and to camp more. But Colorado's high on the list, you know, having never been there and especially hunting now. It just yeah. seems like the perfect place to go. Yeah. So last time I saw you in person, uh, you were uh, prancing around in your underwear with a, with a bow and arrow, I believe. That's right. That's right. You know, the, the, I never leave home without the Speedo. I don't, I'm not sure that that was the, the best camouflage for the hunt. Um, it's funny. A lot, a lot of people saw that picture of me next to Greenfield shooting and they're like, you can't be serious. And I'm like, no, I'm not serious. Like this is practice. We're getting dialed in. I think I'm going to go yeah. out looking for X's deer in a Speedo. Um, yeah. That was a hell of a trip though. I had a great time. We had some good conversations and yeah. You know, if we just had mic'd us up the whole time, that'd have been, you know, 40 hours of content right there. It would have been amazing. Yeah, we we have to it's it's all top secret where we were. We can't talk about that uh-huh. apparently, but uh um yeah, I felt like you know, it all happened so fast. It was one of those things, and I guess this happens a lot in life where where, you know, you find yourself in a situation suddenly and you just sort of roll with it. And then months later you look back and you're like, geez, that was a hell of a fucking situation. You know, like I didn't realize at the time how bizarre that was. Um, But basically I got dropped into this group of like Uber, Uber men, uh, you know, you and, uh, uh, ben Greenfield and uh, who's the doctor from San Diego? Dr. Peter Atia. Peter Atia, yeah, like all these super like macho, hyper fit, biohacker, intellectual, like you know these these fucking killer dudes. And suddenly there's Dr. Ryan dropped into the mix. You know, pudgy old, out of shape, fucking lazy ass me. And, um, yeah, it was, I mean, I remember showing up and it was because someone else, I don't know, you know, who, who we could talk about or not, I don't know, but someone was supposed to go and couldn't make it at the last minute and was kind enough to let, like, let me take their spot. So, uh, it was bizarre, man. I felt like it, it was like, um, you know those superhero movies? Not that I've ever seen any of them, but they've got all these different cartoon characters, and then there's like Michael Jordan or some like actual human. I felt like that. I was like, I'm the only human here. The rest of them are all like fucking paragons. And then I was going to say it was it was Aubrey Marcus that gave gave away his spot because he had to hang back and podcast with Joe Rogan, and so right. obviously you know you don't want to turn that down. Um, <laughs> But he asked me, he said, like, who, sh- who should come? And I was like, I, the first thing I, I wrote, our buddy Kyle Terman, I was like, see if Chris can come. Like, that would oh, be the no fucking shit. best thing ever. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that was you. Absolutely, dude. Well, absolutely. Thank you. And, and thank I'm thinking you. about this, like, the when you hunt, you hunt. You know, that's that's your own thing. You're not, it's not like you're having conversations and shit, but it's the in-between time. And I was like, I want to fucking spend the in-between time with Chris Ryan. You know, oh, I want to dive dude. deep. I didn't yeah. know I had you to thank for that. Yeah, I appreciate yeah, that. Absolutely. That was, so, that was so cool. Yeah, it, it it all happened. I was, I was in the desert in um, out near Bombay Beach. Uh, I have a friend who does a. Well, I guess he's not doing it anymore. But he, for a few years, he did like a sort of a mini Burning Man thing out there. Um, and I just got this text from Kyle Tierman, like, "Hey, can you get to L.A. and fly to Hawaii tomorrow?" And I was like, "Sure, I guess so." And 
<laughs> Next thing I know, I'm walking into this cabin and you guys are like eating horse meat that somebody had shot some <laughs> wild horse that day and like balls and stuff. I mean, it was just like, what? And everyone's in camo and it's like, what the hell has happened here? This is insane. And then we're flying around in helicopters and it was awesome. Yeah, that was, that, I was, I don't think that I'll do it that way again you know the the cost was uh exorbitant it was it was like uh to be helicoptered all over the islands you know that was pretty cool but it felt yeah. like you know like they're gonna play like um uh what's the they play that shit in every like war movie i'm thinking like clearwater revival or something like oh. that you know like that's just going on <laughs> like we're going into fucking vietnam it was it was yeah. it didn't obviously it didn't have that feel i'm not trying to make light of war but it was like yeah. going by helicopter everywhere you go that's a thing like i was like holy shit this is cool you know and then realizing the cost of that i was like yeah i'm probably not gonna hunt like this again you know that might be a one-time deal but um yeah yeah, man uh the horse thing that was so funny i mean (laughs) greenfield it it was like all right we we, i want to explain the horse story because this is a funny (laughs) one for people um one of our guides, Justin Lee, who's awesome, he's got a family farm, and they make, um, I think they're the number one producer of sandalwood in the world, Hawaiian sandalwood. So if anybody's into like essential oils, like Young Living, stuff like that, it's, it's a really prized essential oil, and it's got a lot of medicinal properties. It's awesome stuff. But each one of those trees fully grown is like $10,000. That's the value. Mm. And horses will get out there, and they'll eat the saplings. And so they have to manage their horses, obviously. But if a horse gets out from somebody else's property, none of this stuff's fenced in Hawaii. If a horse gets out from somebody else's property, they they have to call the owners and let them know, like, hey, your horse is here. Can you come get it? But if they don't get a call back, after a certain period of time, it becomes fair game. And nobody there, none of the, the none of the ranch hands or the other locals wanted to kill the horse. But, I mean, at that point, it had become a nuisance and a loss to the business. And of course, this isn't just killing for sport. This is killing for food. So Greenfield was out and one of the guys looking at that horse, looking at his chops. And uh, one of the guides is like, hey, you can kill it if you want to. And he's like, no way. I'm trying to fill my freezer. I can shoot it right now. And she's like, yeah, you can shoot it. No one else will. And he fucking plugged it like 30 yards, took as much meat as he could. And, and we ate that night. And surprisingly, I thought that was one of the best tasting meats I've ever had. It had like a sweetness <laughs> and a tenderness. And I know Greenfield ate as much of that as humanly possible. He fed his family with it. So from a, you know, sport hunting versus, you know, how I like to hunt, I think that that he definitely honored the animal. It just triggers people because it's like, no, but we love horses. You can't kill a horse. And it's like, at the end of the day, we're all fucking food. Everything on this planet is food. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's It's so arbitrary what is considered food and what's considered a pet. Uh, so strange. Yeah. I've had horse meat several times and, and you're right. It tastes great. I, I think it's one of the better meats around. Yeah. It's, it's weird. I, I would have trouble with dog. I think that that's, uh, but you know, it's one thing I, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Like, um, you know, I've thought about like ways I wish I were cooler, you know? And <laughs> one of them is I wish that I were, totally chill about eating whatever the fuck i wish i were like anthony bourdain when it comes to eating you know like you know marmot's asshole sure i'll eat that you know uh 
I'm not. I'm finicky as fuck. Like there, there's stuff I just like. No, nope, not eating that. You know, fish skin. Nope, not. I'm. I just. I mean, if I were starving, I'd eat it. But I'm not starving, so I'm going to take it off. Um, and it's. I know it's not cool. I. It's definitely like I'm a. I'm a bit of a of a dork there. Yo, Are there things where you wish you were cooler? I can't think of anything right now. I'm just thinking about food. It's like a, it's like a sliding scale, right? Like how hungry are you? Have you actually gone without food? Like that changes the scale. Um, I think of things from like a nutritional standpoint, just from like the obviously background and fighting and shit like that. You know, like if it, if it doesn't taste good, but it's going to help me in ways that other foods can't, then I'm up for it. You know, like uh, Paul Saladino, the carnivore doc, it's like his shtick to always bring me some kind of raw organ meat. And I've had I've had a lot of different raw organ meats. Kidney tastes like you're eating piss. Like I'm not gonna force myself to eat that. Like as good as kidney is for me, like sorry, yeah. dude, it's it's not good. It tastes like shit. It's not good. Yeah. Um, but I have probably a decent amount of organ meat for that. I think when I was when I was younger, I for a long time thought about how I dressed. You know, like like can I dress cooler? And then you know, it's funny because like I look at how I dress. My mom dressed me like a preppy, which was the cause of a lot of street fights when I was a kid. Mm. And um, you know, it doesn't matter which section you think is cool. There's always that's uncool to a lot of people. And you think like the goth kids playing Magic the Gathering, like they thought that was cool, and everyone else around them was like, "You're fucking dork," you know. So it doesn't matter like what where the cool is, you know. It, it it's really just perspective. So. Yeah. Yeah. I remember there's a, there's a study, uh, about men. Uh, it's they're they're studying women's perception of men and, and which men are attractive to, to women and how they could like, uh, change the way they dress. Right. So what they did was they took a bunch of dudes, um, and they took photos of the dudes wearing like, you know, t-shirts and jeans and whatever, just sort of hanging out casual clothes and then they dress the same dudes in suits and ties and you know looking professional and they ran the photos by women and the women consistently rated the men more attractive when they were wearing suits and ties than casual clothes even though they're exactly the same guys right and uh so then that was presented as like women are attracted to men who have status and power and money and all that shit right then somebody, some graduate student somewhere said, well, let's do the study again, but let's add a third group, which is men who are dressing in ways that indicate that they just don't give a fuck, right? They're just like, so there are three categories. There's like the winners of the game, the losers of the game, and the guys who aren't playing the game. And a lot of the women, not all of them, but a lot of the women consistently rated the guys who aren't playing the game as the most attractive. So that's always stuck in my mind, right? Like you can be cool, you could be uncool, or you can be like, I don't play that game. I don't give a fuck. And for certain people, that's the coolest, right? That's like, oh, my socks don't match. I don't give a shit. Like, I just put on socks. I don't care, right? I dress for comfort. I don't give a fuck what I look like. There's something compelling about that. Yeah, even from, like, a man attracted to man, not on a sexual level, but, like, you know, when I think of people who I resonate with, you know, if I meet a guy and he's dressed to the nines, there's something in me that's kind of like, what the fuck are you doing, dude? What are you trying to impress right now? We're not in a board meeting. You know, like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you yeah. Fucking take your tie off. You uh, what if I meet? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you meet somebody else who's just 
who's chill and hasn't overthought their outfit and still looks good and, and put together, then there's that, that's a draw for me. It's like, Oh, I'm, I'm intrigued. I want to know more. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, somebody pointed out that like the last three times that I've been on Rogan's podcast, I've had the same shirt on. <laughs> and they were like man he must really love that shirt and i'm like no i just wear like three shirts in rotation and it just turned out like that's what i was wearing yeah that's my warm weather shirt you know <laughs> yeah that's yeah. something people would notice for sure <laughs> yeah they notice way before i do yeah so uh so you you mentioned street fights were you always a big dude or did you have a growth spurt at some point? Oh, I had a number of growth spurts when I was a kid, like, and they happened so often. I mean, I had growing pains in my shins, my thighs. Um, my dad would give me ibuprofen and rub my legs with ice and massage them. Like, that's how bad they hurt. They keep me up at night. Um, sometimes I'd grow two inches in a month, you know, one Fuck. summer and come back. But I was always skinny. I was like, I didn't start filling out, I think, till I was probably 15 or 16. And I'd already been lifting for a couple of years, but it just didn't matter. Like when you're growing at that rate, your body's just trying to keep up. It's not putting muscle on. Um, So it was always tall and thin. And I think a lot of the older kids, you know, saw saw me as like somebody that was their size height wise, but um, clearly younger, you know, and that that put a a little target. And then with mom dressing me up like some kind of little choir boy, (laughs) (laughs) that was there was plenty of a target there. And you know, I, I ran away from kids most often, but every now and then I'd have I I wouldn't have the ability to outrun them and would have to turn and and say let's do it. Um, but that probably started when I was six years old. It was pretty early on. It's funny people think of the Silicon Valley and they're like, oh yeah, it's this tech tech blah blah blah. It's so nice and the cost of living and all that. And it's like yeah, for a long time, like I I didn't grow up in East Palo Alto, thankfully, but that's before Facebook. That was a shithole. Like there's tons of gangs there, East Side San Jose. Like these are areas you don't want to be, especially as like a, a a white person or just anyone in general, unless you're from there. And people who are from there recognize that. Like it's these are hard areas, but even outside those areas, people love to scrap. You know, Cupertino, where Apple Apple was founded. That's where I, I spent most of my time growing up. There's a lot of fights growing up. You know, I remember like freshman year in high school, they implemented zero tolerance. Zero tolerance meant, you know, one fight and you're expelled, that kind of thing, right? So from that point on, fighting became less often. But prior to that, you know, if you're just going to get suspended for a few days, kids fought all the time. And I'm sure, you know, this is nothing new to people from the Midwest or the Northeast or places like that. But you wouldn't generally think of the Silicon Valley as a place where that goes down. and, And at the same time, you know, people would ask me, like, why San Jose for American Kickboxing Academy? Like one of the greatest fight schools in the world is in San Jose, California. And it's like, well, you if you were from here, you'd get it. Like there's a ton mm-hmm. of people that want to get down and have, and this is a place where we come to train. Why, why were you living there? Were your parents in the my, business or? Yeah. My parents came down from Oregon. Both were one of five kids in their families, um, from the Pacific Northwest. And they just, they couldn't stand the rain. You know, they wanted to come down to California. There was opportunities there. Um, my dad was in sales, started a company, uh, it's called Silicon Valley shelving. He doesn't work. Obviously he hasn't, he hasn't worked there. He's kind of like you. He's just, uh, you know, lives on the land up in the Santa Cruz mountains and, um, 
tends the garden and works some odd jobs here and there, but that's, that's it. Like he's, he's definitely chilled out and, and left the, the rat race, but he started Silicon Valley shelving and it was like a static control shelving right when the tech boom took off and the dot com mm. boom. And so all these companies blowing up in the Silicon Valley had to have special shelving that wouldn't fry their computer processors and microchips and all that. And so, um, when I was young, I got to help him build it. And that was, I'd make $200 an hour as a 16 year old. Like those are fucking high dollar jobs. Um, I'd say it ruined me, but I worked at Burger King for two years from 14 to 16 for 425 an hour. So I had this nice balance of blue collar work and, and actual pay. But, um, mom got into real estate there, you know, and, and became super successful. So they didn't have a reason to leave. And really, I mean, Northern California is gorgeous. It's, it's a really beautiful place. It's one of the most beautiful places on the planet. It's just gotten stickier and stickier, uh, you know, with, with uh, how people view the world and what we should and shouldn't do and, and all the other things that go with that, you know. Did you yeah. ever hear Douglas Murray on Joe Rogan's podcast? He wrote The Doug, Madness did, of Crowds. No, but I read the book recently. Yeah, fucking phenomenal book. What'd you think of it? Yeah, I liked it a lot. I, uh, I thought it was really interesting. Um you know, the central thesis that, I, I, I mean, I think it's it's really interesting how institutions or, or you know, I don't know, wars seem to go on after the war is largely won. You know, like I kept thinking about how before World War II, the U.S. didn't have a standing army. And then after the war, it's like, well, we're just going to keep the army. The war's over. But we're just going to keep the army and keep, you know, building bombers and submarines and all that shit. And the United States just sort of became this war industry. Um, and it seemed like that's kind of what he was talking about with social stuff. You know, it's like, yeah, we all acknowledge that racism sucks. It's bullshit. And, you know, we need to address it. But it's almost like. Um, you know, we come to a point where we're all on the same page and then it's in the interests of certain institutions to keep the conflict as alive as possible uh, and, keep, you know, keep because everyone wants attention. Once you've got the attention, you want to keep it. You know, I, I have a friend who worked. Um, fuck, what was her job? It was, it was she was working in a nonprofit. And I forget what the exact situation was, but it was a nonprofit and they were fighting for certain kinds. I think it was for like gay marriage or something like that. That was their, you know, they were fighting for gay marriage and then California was like, okay, gay marriage is cool. And then the, the nonprofit was like, uh, okay, now we're going to fight for LGBT rights. And like, instead of just being like, Oh, we won. Everybody go home now. No, no, no. You, you got to move on to the next thing. So, yeah, I think that the central thesis of that book was was really interesting. And, uh, yeah, I didn't hear him on Rogan. I should probably listen to that. He was good. But, I mean, think? if you read – if you, I absolutely loved it. And I think it's a book that a lot of people should read no matter where you live. But especially, you know, if you live on one of the coasts, I think it's an eye-opening thing that can help bridge the gap. You know, like in all of this stuff, like if we just point out the problems on either side, it's just going to further divide us. So like what's going to bridge us back together? And I think understanding, you know, a lot of the points he makes chapter by chapter, and there's only like four. I think he goes gay, uh, race, uh, 
female, women, and, and transgender. He gets into those four topics with interludes in between them. But those are big, big, chunky topics, you know? Yeah. And, and the way he lays them out and really just grounds them to a place where it's like, hey, like there's no bridging of a gap if we continue in this way. There's no coming back to something that unites people if we if we don't remember forgiveness, if we cancel out fucking everyone and then go retroactively back through history to cancel out people today, like fucking Dr. Seuss, what are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> what are we what, what, what world are we building? I think it was um, Brett Weinstein, maybe not somebody somebody like that, that was on Rogan's was talking about, you know, who what do you win when you win a revolution? You inherit mm. rubble. You inherit the rubble. If a revolution actually happens, you inherit the rubble. Or instead of that, you can build systems that outclass and outmatch the broken ones that we have right now. You know, and, and there's there's a plethora that we can work with. But I think I think Douglas Murray does a beautiful job of of hopefully centering, you know, some people in terms of how we view this landscape because there is a a, a pack mentality that's happening just due to social media and things like that and who we want to align with so we can further identify ourselves as a tribe member for team blue, team red, or team this, team that. And, and you yeah. know that perfectly well. You know what I mean? Civilized to Death was, was absolutely brilliant for so many reasons, but that was a big part of it for me was understanding like, yeah, man, if we continue to grab onto things and hold them as us and we don't see how far we're veering we look back on that and it's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That we, we should have pumped the brakes maybe a little bit, you know, on some of the some of those <laughs> yeah. ideas, you know, like yeah. this this did this, which was great initially, but thirty years from now that 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 did a whole lot of other things we didn't want. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does seem it feels to me like there's a a backlash or or the pendulum is swinging back a little bit in terms of this. And maybe it's just because of the people I talk to and the things I choose to read and look at. Um, but it's weird. I, I feel, uh, and maybe this is a, an age thing, a generational thing, but I kind of feel like, um, I don't know, disconnected from it. You know, I read about it. I read about like what happened to Brett Weinstein at, uh, you know, that college, Evergreen College, uh, or was that Eric? I always get them mixed up. I don't know. I think it, was, One, it was Brett. Yeah. It was Brett. Yeah. Um, you know, I read about this stuff and it's just like I'm reading about a, a, another world, you know. I, I really don't have any contact with that. Uh, and and any time I have contact with somebody who thinks that way, I just sort of tune them out or block them on social media. And, and I So it's nice. It's a luxury. But I do kind of feel like uh, when I read about that stuff, it's like, are you fucking kidding me? Are people really saying these things? Like really believe these things? And Douglas Murray's book was interesting because many of the examples that he brought up were so powerful, you know, and just the the whole thing around trans issues, like, you know, people literally arguing that a trans woman is no different from someone born as a woman. There is no difference. Like, like in what world can you even argue that, you know, and in what world is saying, no, there is a difference the same thing as saying, I hate trans people, right? Like, no, yeah. that's, you're not saying you hate anyone. You're just saying there's a difference. I just did a, honestly, I haven't released this. And, and it's one of the only times I've ever recorded uh, a rant podcast and not just released it immediately. 
And I'm sort of, I'm going to listen to it and decide whether I'm going to release it or not. And the reason is it's about race, right? So this guy wrote an article in The Guardian a couple of weeks ago. And the author's a black guy. And he says, um, it's about March Madness. And it's the, the headline is, you know, as March Madness continues, so will myths of black athletic superiority. And so his argument in this article is that it's racist to say that, um, you know, some black elite black athletes have any sort of physiological advantage. That's racist. Um, because the reason that the majority of the guys playing basketball in March Madness are black is that they have uh, no other opportunities in life. And so that creates a desperation. Like the only way you're going to get out and get ahead is to be a great athlete or an entertainer. So that's what makes them train harder and so on. But I read that and it's like, are you fucking kidding me, dude? Like, are you telling me? Like uh, some guy from West Africa runs faster because uh, of the racial situation in the United States. Like that doesn't make any fucking sense, you know, and to say there is no physiological difference between people whose ancestors came from West Africa versus people whose ancestors came from Japan is just like obviously absurd and yet this argument's being made and it's being made with such passion that he's like daring you to disagree. Yeah. He's daring you. <clears throat> and it's like to say there are differences between races is not racist. It just isn't, you know. That's that's part of the part of the main thing that Douglas Murray points out is that through through the attempt to make all things equal what we're seeing is is that even if you point out differences that are real, like biology and <laughs> gender biology, you can say, oh, gender doesn't mean male or female. Gender means a thousand different things. And you can elect to be a thousand different things. I identify, I had a buddy say he identifies as a dolphin, like as a joke, right? But it's like, yeah, if we're all playing fucking make-believe, sure. Kids come from a sperm and an egg that come from what? Genetic material that has a gender or a masculine or feminine feel to it you get down to chromosomes and all that stuff like any way you want to cut it stop changing the fucking lexicon of what's available to us and just understand like these things are a part of science and they are necessary to support human life that's yeah. undeniable we can't argue that and to say that pointing that out makes you sexist racist or anything else is absurd that doesn't help equality and you know when he brings up Martin Luther King in, in, uh, in that book many, many times, his ideas weren't that we had just one fucking pale ass race that was like just a bland thing. It was, no, let's, let's, let's create the salad bowl, you know, and recognize each other's differences and celebrate those differences and look beyond those differences, you know? Yeah. So we're not saying like, I have a black friend. We're just saying I have a friend and, and whatever he is, he is, but it's not to say it's not to homogenize the whole fucking planet and act like we don't have differences. We do. And those should be celebrated. They're fucking awesome gifts that make us unique. We don't want to lose uniqueness. You know, like think yeah. about kids, like going back to that clothing conversation, kids fight tooth and nail to be unique, even if it makes them the same as everyone else. 
right? Like, no one wants <laughs> yeah. to fucking not be unique, especially yeah. with all the people on the planet. Yeah, it's it's a weird it's a weird kind of argument, like backwards from your conclusion. Like, you know, I want to believe there are no differences, and therefore, uh, I refuse to accept any argument that that is. That, high, that that points to differences. Like I, I, I commented on this article I read recently um, about eugenics, right? And so eugenics, for people who don't know, is is um, is the idea that there are heritable traits in a population, and that there can be selective mating, uh, so that those traits that are most desirable will be more frequent in subsequent generations. That's true, right? Anyone who's ever like, you know, worked with breeding dogs or chickens or any kind of livestock, everybody knows that's true or anything. Um, And yet, because the Nazis um, used it and did forced sterilization, uh, on people that they consider to be inferior, the entire concept is now untouchable. And it's like, look, one thing is the knowledge, the science. The other thing is what has been done with it. And the fact that something has been misused doesn't mean that the knowledge itself is invalid, right? Like we didn't say, Oh, the Nazis were the, you know, the best uh, rocketry scientists. Therefore, no one's ever going to build rockets again. We didn't do that, right? No, we, we took fucking the fucking... brought them over and gave them the, <laughs> exactly. said, work gave for them us jobs. at NASA. Yeah. <laughs> Put them to work, right? Or the fact that, you know, nuclear uh, waste has been dumped in the oceans and, you know, the aquifers and, and, you know, completely fucked everything up. That doesn't mean nuclear physics isn't real. Right. It's the science is real. But somehow around these sexual and these gender and racial issues, it's like to point out any kind of a difference is is invalid because it's it's because people have misused those differences. It's very strange. Yeah. I I don't know where the fuck this country's going, man. I don't either. It's it's, (laughs) I know the pendulum swings both ways, uh, you know, and and and. As far as we get divided, there eventually is some sort of collapse that brings us back together. Who knows? Uh, It certainly wasn't COVID. It wasn't, you know, there was no, you think of like the world, uh, like Independence Day. You know, what great thing will come along that bands everyone together or any of the alien movies. Arrival is one of my favorites, things like that. And it's like, oh, yeah, humanity realizes we're all in this together you know the same we're all one whatever you you get that from eastern mysticism or psychedelics whatever that is and it's like at the end of the day with the 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 picture that i'm watching each day it does not look like we're heading there anytime soon so i don't know what about the ufos there are all these fucking ufo sightings now is that is that what's happening? That the fucking UFOs are going to bring us all together at the last moment when we're just tearing each other apart? They're going to be like fucking aliens, and we're going to go, "Oh my god, we're all humans. We've got a common problem here," you know? Yeah, I don't know. That that that, that is the theme of Independence Day, though, right? Like, we're, oh hey, we have this this existential threat that's upon us. We must band together, and I think they they attempted in many ways to use COVID as that, and it's like, no, it just turned into more blame. 
and you don't want to wear a mask and, and all that shit. And it's like, that just, it, it didn't bring us together. You know, maybe that wasn't, you know, the, the, a central theme behind it. Um, but that was something that was, you know, all world worldwide. And you think about yeah. like the aliens coming and shit like that. Like I've never thought for one second, if aliens showed up that we'd need to be worried. If aliens yeah. wanted us out of here, it fucking would have happened already. You know, it would have easily happened already. Well, you know, I've got this theory that aliens have been here for quite a while and we just can't see them uh, as what they are. And essentially what they are is corporations are super organisms that rule the world. And we they've convinced us that we run corporations, but we really don't. Corporations run us. It's their world. We're just living in it. And... uh you know, whatever is in the interest of these giant monoliths, uh, that's that's what happened. So if it's in, you know, I had this guy on my podcast last week who's a, a lawyer who uh, led the team that sued Chevron for $9.5 billion for the waste that they dumped into the jungles of Ecuador. And he won the judgment, $9.5 billion, Right. So what did they do? Chevron, first of all, took all their assets out of Ecuador, where they won the case, and said, yeah, fuck you. We're leaving the oil in the rivers and, you know, just fuck y'all. And then he brought the case in the U.S. And uh, Chevron hired private legal team to uh, investigate him and prosecute him. And he's been under house arrest for 600 days for a misdemeanor for refusing to turn over his phone uh, because it had, you know, personal and uh, uh, client uh, information on it. And uh, yeah, this guy's getting totally fucked in the U.S. system for having gone up against a big company. They they own the legal system. It's it's unbelievable. Anyway, I don't know. I, I don't know yeah, what the fuck brutal. I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't even, I don't have anything to say other than I'm pissed <laughs> off right now. That fucking... <laughs> That doesn't sit well. There's a book that actually talks quite a bit about that. I think it's called Egregores. Have you heard of it? No. It's about you know how, how these corporations or or you know any system, uh, uh, religion, you know things like that can basically become something that that is not only operating on a physical plane, but all the way the mental, emotional, astral, spiritual, etheric field, whatever you want to call that. It's beyond um, mm. what we see in the physical reality, and then. Um, because of that, like on a spiritual level, that's where the guidepost, that's the puppet master, you know? Right. I think that to me explains corporatocracy better than David Icke does, you know? Uh, And, Mm. and I've learned a lot from David Icke, but there's a lot of things where I'm like, eh, I think we're taking it a bit far, buddy. But in terms of... David Icke's the lizard dude. Yeah. He's the lizard dude among other things. I mean, he has pointed out a lot of stuff that has, has been hard to argue uh, over the last 30 years. But yeah, as far as, you know, lizard people, reptilians, <coughs> he, he has some thoughts on the eugenics piece around that as well. But yeah, um, needless to say, egregores, fantastic book. And they dive mm. into that. These, and, and it's similar to what Douglas Murray points out in that like the movement itself becomes bigger than any one single part within it. Right. So you can win the game. Gay marriage is legal. 
across the United States. Say it happens internationally and there's no more stonings in the Middle East and shit like that. Like say it's the whole world says, fuck yeah, we love gay and lesbians. Everyone wants to, you know, same sex marriage, same sex, anything. It's all, it's all greenlit. The system that built that doesn't stop. The system that built that is bigger than the people within it. And, and that even operates on a spiritual level. So I think that's uh very similar to what you're talking about. That's what they point out in the book, Egregores, and they give a ton of different cool examples that help you think in different terms around that. Because people have a hard time, you know, it, it's funny, like I, I can talk to people here about um, corporatocracy and technocracies and things like that, and they're all years. You can make it back to California and it's like, eh, I don't know, you know, there, there's just certain people that have a hard time saying that, that whatever's in control of this has any power over them. Like to, to hmm. acknowledge that would be surrendering power. And it's like, mm, or you just have blinders on and you're not fully seeing what the fuck's happening. You know, when, when somebody could tell you to stay in your fucking house for multiple weeks on end for two weeks, and then later that gets stretched out to over a year with what they're making us do, that, that, that power has been given away already. You know, so the more clear we can get on that and become aware of what's happening, the, the easier it is then to say like, all right, how do we affect change? Yeah. Yeah, for me, it keeps coming down to a question of scale. You know, it, it's like when when birds get into a flock, the flock makes the decision, not the birds. The individual birds are kind of like trapped. Uh, and I, I feel and, and, you know, I get accused of romanticizing hunter gatherers and all that. And I'm sure that's true to some extent. But it just feels like when you've got fewer people. And, you know, whether it's a hunter-gatherer band or a small town or, you know, a, a group of friends, like you guys have sort of a tribal community thing going uh, among you, your friends, you and Aubrey and everybody down there. Uh, I feel like on that scale, these institutional uh, entities don't take hold, right? You need a large scale. You need a scale where where everyone doesn't know each other. There's no personal connection. It becomes institutionalized and mechanized and hierarchical power and all that kind of thing. It's not based on charisma and personality and reputation. It's based on, you know, you're, you're, you're a general, so you can tell everyone what to do, or you're the CEO and you answer to the shareholders. And it's all like, it, it becomes, I think that's, on that scale where people don't interact personally, that's when these things take life and start to take control of the people who, who are involved, right? It's, it's, a, it's fucking weird. I don't know. It's, I think about it all the time. Like, you know, the guy who runs Chevron, the CEO of Chevron, doesn't decide what Chevron does, even though he signs the papers if he says, we're going to stop polluting Ecuador and we're going to pay these people and we're going to set up health clinics and we're going to admit what we did, then he gets fired, right? He can't actually make that kind of decision. It's very strange. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder who's, you know, <laughs> who's in charge of the president, that kind of stuff, you know, same kind of deal. Like, like you think of presidential yeah. power and, and over the years, I think more and more people have become aware it doesn't matter how much you love the president or dislike the president. At the end of the day, their their fucking hands are tied up and they can't do as much as we think they can. Right. And I think that explains a lot of the appeal of Trump. I mean, I don't know where you and I are politically, if we agree or don't agree, but I think that 
a lot of the appeal of Trump is that he seemed to be someone who was outside of that. He wasn't someone who came up and got shaped by the system and was then going to be a, a tool of the system, right? Like Obama, that was part of the appeal of Obama too. Like he's different. He's smart. He's cool. He's got a, a nice jump shot. Like he's going to, he's one of us, you know? And then he got in there and it's like, no, nah, he's not one of you. He's, yeah. he's one of them. And that's the only reason they let him in there, you know? And then, I mean, Jimmy Carter was another example of that after Watergate. Like, you know, you're too young to remember those days, but there was this disgust with Washington and like, oh, a fucking peanut farmer. Let's give him a shot. He, I think he actually was different. Um, You know, as you can see by what he's done with his life since then, you know, he's, he's, he's a real mensch, that guy, but he was considered a total loser as a president because he didn't kick ass, you know? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your life like down there? You got a kid. How old's your son? Uh, he'll be six in a couple of weeks. And we got a nine month old little girl who just started walking. And oh my, uh, she's, she's doing a lot of things early and it's, it's awesome. But it's at the same time, like slow down, slow down. It, it's, it's weird how the, the memory just gets wiped clean. Like I had to start watching old videos of bear when he was younger. Cause I don't remember those stages. It's just like, it's always, you're in the eternal now, you know, like the, the son mm. I have is the son that I have right now. And I, you know, remember some of the quirks and little things that he did at different stages, but I don't have, I can't like sift through. Cause it's, there's just so much it's like the amount of information that comes through from your child on a day-to-day basis is so much that it's just too much to actually sift through and look back upon, you know, it's like whatever's happening right now is all that's happening. Um, but having, having two, two kids is awesome. I don't know that we'll have more. We may, we may not. Um, I'd like to think that's not really my decision, you know, um, whatever happens happens. But, uh, I got, I got the kids, um, you know, we make it outside in nature as much as we can. There's there's a lot of great places out here. I just took uh, my son and my nephew over to Rome Ranch in Fredericksburg. They do um, regenerative agriculture. Yeah, really I have cool. a lot of friends who've been there recently. It seems yeah. like everyone's yeah. There was a good group. There. They did it. We did a field harvest for a buffalo. It was one of the older bulls, and Tim Kennedy shot the animal. And uh, you know, my my son and nephew were right next to me while while we were watching him field dress it. And, uh, you know, sprinkled some tobacco and prayed for the animal and thanked it for its body. We had heart tartare and uh, this really cool, you know, regenerative meal. And then I took them swimming in the Peter Nellis River. So we just get outside. If I'm not, I try to work like, I really take it to heart. I forget which podcast you're on, but you're talking about how, uh, you know, Tim Ferriss talked about this in the four hour work week. Like whatever your number is, have that and then get the fuck Mm. out. Don't don't start making a whole bunch of money and just saying like, oh, OK, well, you, you know, my number changed now. I'm going to stay in the game. And um, really, if I think about my life long term, the things that I do right now, I want to be able to do for as long as I want to do them. I don't want to have a date where I say, oh, all right, retired. And at the same time, what's sustainable in that is how much I put in each day. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to do a lot each day. I want to do a little each day. And I think in civilized to death, you were talking about, you know, on average, a three or four hour day in any hunter gatherer society for the hunting and the gathering. And then it was play and song and dance. And it's like, yeah, that's what I want to have right now. And I've really been able to cultivate that over the last year Mm. on any given day. 
I work three hours tops, you know, yeah. that might piss some people off, but it's like, I've cultivated that and I don't need more money. I want the time, right? At a certain, right. at a certain point in time, you realize that the scale of, of wealth, which is both things, financial and the time, however you want to spend that financial or time, that that's all wealth. And people sacrifice time for more money all the fucking time. And half mm-hmm. of them come to me saying, how do I fix this? You know, it's like, you, you got to understand, like there, it doesn't matter how much money you have if you don't have the time to spend it or the vacation to take, or, you know, you, you, you go to your son's high school graduation and realize you didn't fuck, you missed half his fucking life. Like, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. So I'm super fortunate Good. that I get to spend time with them. And, you know, obviously working with Aubrey and fit for service, like we just spent fucking nine days in Costa Rica. That was work. That's a pretty damn cool job. You know, I'm, I'm helping people and um, we get to go all over the world. I think we're going to either Montana or Wyoming next. So so tell me about that. What 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 are you guys doing? Well, we, we've, you know, we started off by just, you know, Aubrey had, I guess I rewind at the beginning. Aubrey had a vision on Wachuma, San Pedro Cactus, out at Spirit Quest in Peru with Don Howard before he passed away. And the vision was to build community. And in that, you know, really share what are the nuts and bolts pieces that we've been attracted to, you know, like who, there's a lot of fucking coaches out there in the world. And it's funny, I, I'm, I'm not a life coach and not any of that shit. I'm simply a student who shares what I'm passionate about. And I've made it my job to learn more and to embody that stuff. You know, and it started with the physical and, and fighting, needing to learn about mobility and cold baths and Wim Hof and all that stuff, diet, nutrition, supplements, um, but all that's kind of entry level bullshit to us. You know, it's like, it's important to have that. If you don't have your health, that's an issue. I think most people recognize that now, certainly in the last year, but past that, what's driving you? What wakes you up? Where's the fire inside, you know, and what actually matters in life. And I think being able to work with people on that has been really fulfilling and fun because I'm learning as I go. I'm learning from people, the people I interact with and, and, um, you know, each one of us has a different lens Aubrey myself uh Caitlin and Eric Godsey who's a Jungian analyst studied Jung all through college and just a brilliant young mind you know we each have our offerings in our own lens in which we we view things and share with people and that's been really good and then we bring in some awesome fucking people like we've had East Forest play you know live ceremony sets for for the group and uh Anahata lead people through the shamanic breath work which is you know it's like holotropic breathing but with a different feel and um, those are powerful experiences, you know, like to be able to guide people through a powerful, transformative, altered state of consciousness legally. That's pretty cool shit, you know, and that, that's really what we're up to is bringing people together and um, putting them through the rounds so that they can get the, these breakthrough experiences and really be able to ground that and change and be the archetypes of their life and not be in this, you know, system of woe is me this shit happened and like actually, you know, like take responsibility for themselves and understand like, okay, I can do this. I got coaches to do it with. And now I've got a squad of a good group of people that also have my back and are going through the same shit. We're all doing this together. And that's been really cool to, to be a part of that. Mm, that's awesome. Yeah. Listening to you talk about, uh, you know, you said I'm, I'm no life coach. I'm, I'm learning all this stuff myself. It, it's, I think it's it's so one of the things I've always really liked about you is like you're at the heart of kind of a, you know, uh, I don't know, call it a community or a movement or whatever 
um, in which I think there is a lot of temptation toward ego inflation. And yet you seem to, it just brush, it just goes right past you. It doesn't embed in you. Um, and I think that, you know, that, that kind of humility that just seems to be your nature is so important and, and actually a really important teaching tool, although you probably don't think of it that way, right? I, I remember reading this quote a long time ago that the best teachers don't try to convey information. They try to create an environment in which learning can happen. I always think about that, right? Like instead of trying to tell someone something, create a space in which they feel free to learn. And then it just happens, you know? I feel like you have that naturally. Like you haven't necessarily thought your way there. You're just there. Uh, that, that, thank you for saying that. That's actually, uh, I've heard that quote before, but I haven't often thought of it. I had a vision out in Sedona uh, up on Bear Mountain where I was thinking about my son and that's in a nutshell what I was being shown. Like I'm not, mm. he, he's not going to absorb his personality, number one. It's funny how kids are like, we thought about homeschooling and it's like, <laughs> we, there's zero chance of ever homeschooling this kid. He doesn't want to fucking listen to me at all. You know, like there's, or my <laughs> wife, there's no chance of that. But, um, no. you know, like my, my job isn't to tell him anything. It's to set up dominoes, these little doorways that he can walk through himself. And in doing mm. that, he's going to know for himself through his own lens what consciousness is, why he's here, what plant medicines mean, what spirituality is, all of that stuff through his own inner experience. You know, and, and really that's experience is the best teacher, you know, and that's what we're trying to do is set up these experiences for people, you know, in a container. You think about, you know, a lot of what's been lost and you pointed to this so much so in, in Civilized to Death, but many great books have talked about that. King Warrior, Magician Lover, um, uh, Maladoma Patrice Somme, he's written several books. Mm. You heard, yeah, phenomenal fucking yeah. guy of water and spirit. When we lose those rites of passage, we're, 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 you know, and Rogan talked about this too. You know, there's a lot of kids dressed up in adult meat suits. You know, and, and there's a book I'm reading right now by Bill Plotkin. Same thing. You know, we, we've, we've reached humanity's reached the stage of adolescence. And we think because we turned a certain age that we became an adult or we turned mm. a certain age that now we're an elder. You're not, <laughs> you know, like life experience is what dictates moving through that ladder of human development. And I think what we're really trying to cultivate within the community and in that container our experiences for people to start to climb that ladder of human development and how that shows up in, in each and everyone's lives is going to be completely unique in any given circumstance. But all we're doing is doing what we've been doing. You know, like we're not reinventing the wheel. We're not, you know, coming out of left field and saying like, Hey, you know, I'm going to breathe this way, do it this way. It's like none of that shit. Like this is the stuff that, that I personally have done in my, like the fires that I've walked that have helped me the most I'm going to give that back and I'm going to show you the way that I did it and give you the opportunity to do it with us. And I think that's been really fulfilling because it's something that it, it feels good. You know, like it's, it's like one of those built in uh, systems where, you know, you give and you receive at the same time. It's like, Oh shit. Yeah. That's, that's, that's sacred economics. You know, that's an awesome feeling to have. And, um, you know, it continues the learning too. It's like, a, it's a continued impetus fighting, Back in the day for me was, I mean, I've read, I've talked about this a lot, but I've read more books in my fight career than I ever did prior in college and prior to that. 
And the reason was fighting gave me a burning desire to know more. I'm going to get my ass kicked unless I can outthink this guy, unless I learn how to recover quicker in between workouts, unless I add every little tr- uh, trick that I can to my repertoire, I'm not going to win. I have a reason to want to learn. And what's great now is that even though I'm not fighting, fit for service in many ways is that. I'm going to interact with people, you know, and, and you know, open relationship too. Like <laughs> we, 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 you know, you, you're aware that my wife and I opened our relationship a couple years ago and we're somewhere, you know, we're, we're, we're not quite polyamorous. We're, we're not quite closed off and monogamous either, you know, somewhere on that sliding scale. Um, but we come across a lot of people that are in the thick of the, the open game and married couples and parents and everything in between. And it's, it's having firsthand experience with that, that actually gives me something to talk about. You know, it's having walk mm. the fires that actually gives me, uh, some street cred in that respect. And, you know, I think uh, Paul Check talked about that before. If you, if you only read books and you ever practice what they're teaching, you're just the smartest guy in the room who doesn't know shit. You know, it's the embodiment of <laughs> yeah. that that actually matters. Yeah. You know, and I think that's that's yeah. what we're giving people, and that's been really cool. Yeah, yeah, I remember uh, I had a really pivotal moment in my life when I realized that I was on a path that was going to lead me to be a professor who specialized in books about travel and adventure, Joseph Conrad and Herman Melville and, you know, that kind of stuff. That's what I really loved reading. And I was like, I'm going to go to grad school and I'm going to become a professor and I'm going to be standing in front of a bunch of kids talking about someone else's stories of adventure and travel without ever having done it myself. Like I'm on a path toward total fucking hypocrisy right here (laughs) that was like i can't do that that was i was in alaska that was uh when i decided not to go to grad school and just fucking go off and travel and you know what you were saying about rites of passage is interesting and talking about being a father i've often thought I, i mean i get this weird thing where i'm older than someone but I feel younger than them um, because they're a parent, for example, right? I feel like, you know, that's an experience that must, I mean, if you're conscious and you're doing it right, matures you in a way, or it's a, it's a, you know, it's a transition. You know, you're younger than me, but you've had that experience that I haven't had. Or I remember I had a girlfriend who was 10 years younger than me, but both her parents had died. And I remember thinking, like, in some way, she's older than me. You know, at that point, both my parents were alive. It's like, yeah, I'm older than her on paper, but she's been through that, and I haven't. So this whole question of age is so strangely defined, you know? It's not about the year you were born. It's about what's happened since then. Yeah, life experience speaks volumes more than whatever number is attached to how many times you've circled the sun. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a big one. I think about you know these rite of, rites of passages and things like that being lost, and it's where, where do we cultivate it now? And you know, Bill Plotkin. I'm trying to think of the. Have you heard of him? Yeah, I have. He he wrote Soulcraft. The book that I'm reading right now is The Initiation of the Soul or the journey of soul initiation. And it's phenomenal because he talks about, he's like, what this is, it's not a rite of passage. It's not, um, 
a vision quest, you know, four days, no food, no water. I want to uh, put a pin in it. I'm definitely doing that one uh, coming up here. But, you know, these things can't be overlooked either. You know, like psychedelics changed my fucking life and half the shit that I've, I've become to viscerally understand and change in my life happened from those experiences with plant medicines. And um, I, I just, what do you, uh, I'm bringing this up because I know you have a lot of experience with them as well. What do you see as pro, the pros and cons of big business getting involved with this? Because it's like, it's yeah. like, I'm, I'm scratching my head here. I don't know whether I should cheer for decriminalization and, and legalization <laughs> or if I should be like, ah, what, 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 yeah. who's, who's behind that, you know? Yeah, I, I, it, it is a strange thing because, you know, I've spent a lot of time and energy in my life um, supporting that movement. You know, I've been working with MAPS since the fucking mid-90s, you know, uh, when it seemed to me that Rick Doblin was crazy, like that he thought he was ever going to get any of this shit done. And I, I admired him and I thought, hey, dude, you know, you're doing the right thing and I understand where you're coming from and I'm there with you, but you, this is never going to work. And now here we are, you know, 20 years later and it's like, oh, shit, it, it's actually happening. It's It's amazing. But as you say, it's... I didn't think about the downsides, you know, back then because it seemed like so unlikely to succeed. But I, I mean, it kind of gets back to what I was saying earlier in, in, in you know, pointing out your, um, you know, the, the temptation to become a guru is very high. Uh, you know, there's a a power in that um, over other people and and ego uh, fulfillment, right? To become like instant fucking shaman, and we're seeing a lot of that. And and honestly, I find that to be very uh, disappointing and sad. Um, but I think it's part of the package, you know, when you 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 take these medicines outside of their cultural context and you start passing them out. I mean, Timothy Leary was doing this back in the sixties, right? Like instant wisdom, you know, fucking wisdom pills. Like, no, it, it, no. <laughs> and so everything that gets, that comes into American culture gets commercialized and packaged. And, you know, I, I was, I was at, um, a, a, a buddy's I have a buddy who's a Navy SEAL and it was his birthday and he invited some people out to uh you know have some drinks at a Mexican restaurant in LA and I was there and and uh we're having a good time really interesting folks and my buddy says hey Chris you should talk to I don't remember the guy's name but he was sitting next to me um about uh, psychedelics he's gonna do some ayahuasca tomorrow and I was like you're doing ayahuasca tomorrow. And this guy was a, a SEAL, a former SEAL, and I think he was having some serious PTSD uh, issues. And um, and somehow someone had told him he should do ayahuasca, right? And so he said, yeah, I'm doing it tomorrow. Uh, I said, really? Like, He said, yeah, they wanted me to stay for the weekend, but I couldn't. I've got stuff going on. I, I can only spare one night. And I was like, and you're drinking a margarita now, huh? And he's like, yeah. 
you think that's a bad idea? And I was like, dude, I don't want to plant any negative energy in, in this, but that this isn't the way you do ayahuasca, right? It's not a visit to the doctor's office to get a prescription to solve your fucking gonorrhea. Like, that's not the way this works, you know? And uh, he was with this woman who I think was sort of behind the whole thing. And she was like, no, no, it'll be fine. Don't worry. It'll be great. I was like, all right, well, whatever, man. So later I heard what had happened that uh, they'd gone to this place in Venice, some house in, in Venice, California. Everybody took some ayahuasca, no ritual container, obviously no dieta, no, no, you know, concern with what you're putting into your body, no uh, thinking about your intentions, just nothing. And so somebody started to have a bad time and also they didn't take away their cell phones. So this person pulls out her cell phone and dials 911 Next thing you know, the fucking cops are breaking down the door, raiding this fucking ayahuasca thing. Everyone's tripping and puking, and it's like, fucking nightmare. Wow. It's a fucking nightmare. But it's what happens when, you know, people, money and ego and uh, convenience and commercialism all get mixed together with these substances. Um, Yeah, it's... That, it's a that, hard one. The, Rick Doblin and you know Dennis McKenna and many of the great psychonauts have often said there's no such thing as a bad trip, only challenging experiences. I would say that's a bad <laughs> trip. I would say there is an exception to the rule here. Cops yeah. breaking down the door during ayahuasca <laughs> is a fucking bad yeah. trip. Man. <laughs> yeah. You know, what yeah. you're speaking to though, it's it's like yes, it's it's a it's it's a commercialization, the ego identity of, hey, I spent six months in the Amazon. I can serve medicines now. Um, If you're lucky, they spent six months there. That's a real problem. And that's an American problem or a modern culture problem. But there's still, you know, there's shady shit in the Amazon. You know, there's there's places where women are getting molested and raped underneath the medicine. Um, There's dark magic and all sorts of weird shit with brujas and witches out there. So it, it, you know, even held in the indigenous container, uh, and perhaps that is because of the commercialization and the amount of people doing ayahuasca tourism. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in any regard, there still is the humanity portion of the experience, the humanness that comes through yeah. uh, with these medicines. But, you know, what you're what you're talking about, like the the scale, what that guy thought he signed up for. It's not wrong. Had he gone to the right place, like a Sultara in Costa Rica or, or you know, one of the you know better places like uh, Spirit Quest out in Nikitos, like, yeah, you're going to you're going to go through it. You're going to be held. You're going to take time off. You're not going to have your fucking cell phone. You're going to have multiple nights to work with the medicine and let the medicine work with you. You're going to have time to reflect yeah. in between those nights like that's best possible outcome. Um, yeah, I think it, you know, as with anything it's it's that much more necessary to do your own research you know just it, it, it more than ever and not just see one friend told me it's a good spot but no actually fucking look it up online actually check with multiple sources with yeah. anything because it's uh i think dr dan told me that once he's like dr dan ingle it's like you're performing psychic surgery you know do you want the yeah. the, the drunk doctor with a shaky hand working on you at 3 a.m <laughs> exactly. or do you want a fucking exactly. professional you know, I, yeah. I always talk about like the, the scale of, you know, jujitsu, there's five belts, white, blue, purple, brown, and black. 
there's a lot of white belts and blue belts serving medicine right now. They're not black yeah. belts. And even amongst black belts, just like in jiu-jitsu, you get your second, third degree all the way up. I have a black belt in jiu-jitsu, and I suck ass compared to most black belts in jiu-jitsu. They've just mm. been doing it longer, and they're way, way, way better. You know, there are, are black belts with ayahuasca that have been guiding ceremonies for 30 or 40 years. That's different than the guy who just started guiding 10 years ago. It's different, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, you're right. And and it's enigmatic because it's hard to find, I think by definition, it's hard to find the best teachers because they're not advertising. You know what I mean? There, I think there's like a natural conflict between um, wisdom and and um, seeking power. You know, I, I remember talking to this guy who said, I never trust a spiritual person in the material world. In other words, someone who is presenting themselves as a spiritual person, but charging a lot of money or, you know, trying to get famous for being this spiritual person. You know, it, it, there's some, there's a humility that comes with actual wisdom, which then makes people quiet and harder to find. You know, it's, it's, there's this inherent conflict between those things. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, that's it's that's strange. That too goes back to fighting. Uh, there's no black belts picking fights at a bar. Exactly. That's what they, I mean. They've had yeah. their ass kicked so many times. They've been humbled so many times. If there was a chip on their shoulder when they started, it's gone now. It's long gone. You know, they have nothing. There's nothing yeah. to prove. And they have a container where they can go satisfy that need as it arises. Whereas, you know, the, the, the guy who trains twice a week in kickboxing class, he might want to test himself. You know, those are the guys I had to watch out for when I was bouncing and bartending while in the UFC. And it's like, the guy, you know, it, there is that too with psychedelics there's that with everything you know but right the 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 beautiful thing about the guy who's done it for 40 or 50 years is he too has had his ass kicked by ayahuasca he's had his ass kicked he's been humbled time and again you know the, mm. the when they give you a bottle for your, your your time to sit with that medicine in your initiation and you go out in the jungle solo for two weeks or however long it's going to be like that's walking the fire and you come back with ultimate reverence for that medicine and how you serve it to others. It's a different yeah. thing than I'm going to play this iPod and, and, you know, we'll call on the spirits and see what happens, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very different. Yeah. You're right. It's everywhere. I mean, you know, small dogs are the ones that bark the loudest, right? Like the big dogs, like, yeah, I don't need to bark. Right. Like I'm cool. Uh, when you hear somebody's music blasting from their car it's normally really bad music. Like, okay, you got the big speakers, but you got shitty taste in music, dude. It's like, it's always the same thing. When you were fighting, were you, like, you don't, you seem like one of the least angry people I know. Was there, were you an angry young guy? Was there a, did you want to beat somebody's ass? Or what, what led you into that? Yeah, there was a, there was a progression, you know, <laughs> no doubt. When I, when I first started, I mean, look, I, I've talked about this before, but it, I want to be, you know, just intelligent, not careful, but intelligent with how I speak about growing up. 
I didn't live in a violent household in the sense of a physical sense, but I lived in a violent household in the sense of communication. Like whatever nonviolent communication is, it was the opposite. And it was really, really hard. And fighting for me on the street was my first, real first inclination of flow or zero mind that I had ever mm. experienced. You know, I bred stealing fire and I was like, oh, fuck, that was it. That's why I loved that I so much. talked to him yesterday. Uh, Jamie, Jamie? awesome. Fuck yeah. 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 I just got his, I just got recapture the rapture and I'm, and I'm getting ready to chew through it. But, um, yeah, I was thinking about that, you know, in hindsight, why I always loved fighting even as a kid. And it was like, Oh, that, that was the peace. Like, how could you feel peace when you're fighting? Well, I wasn't thinking about anything else. You know, like mm. that was the first time I was so in my body. It was like a reverse engineered meditation in action, you know? And, um, I didn't really get to that in my pro fight career because I had all the worries of climbing the fucking ladder and money that I was making or not making if I lost the fight and all the other shit that goes with that. But when I first started fighting professionally, I wanted to beat the fuck out of people. Like I didn't care if I got hit in the face, if it meant I got to punch you back. You know, that was my mindset going into it. I loved fighting for that reason. It's kind of like, um, the line in fight club after, um, Edward Norton beats the shit out of Jared Leto. And uh, Tyler Durden looks at him, he's like, what, what the fuck's wrong with you? And he goes, I wanted to destroy something beautiful. Like, I fucking felt mm. that inside. Like, I wanted to murk people. And then over time, you know, as I pro progressed and got hit enough in sparring, it, it was less about that and more about just being the best version of myself. You're like, let me see. I'm in it now. Let me see how far I can get. I never assumed I'd make it to the UFC. But once I was there, it was like, let's, let's see how far we can go. You know, and, and in that, I had... Um, a boxing coach who was indigenous and Mexican and he'd bring me out to, to the native American reservation for traditional sweat lodges. And then eventually started working with plant medicines. And at that point it was like, fighting's not that important to me anymore. You know, it wasn't like mm. I just wanted to sit around the campfire doing drugs, but at the same point with what I had seen and experienced and felt in plant medicine ceremonies, particularly with psilocybin mushrooms and ayahuasca, it just wasn't the most important thing on my mind anymore. There was much more to life than I had seen before. And I felt like I had extracted like 90% of what I would have gotten out of a fight career. And then getting my ass kicked, you, know, you talk about humility. I lost my last four fights in a row and a lot of them weren't pretty. You know, a lot of them were lopsided ass kickings. So that, that built in, you know, there, there, I had humility hammered home. Uh, with respect to fighting uh, multiple times before I left the UFC with my tail between my legs. But I had these other things in that process that allowed me to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to say no to this. I'm going to, I'm going to put it behind me and I'm not going to think twice about it. I mean, like, yeah, I'll, I'll watch my friends fighting my teammates and say like, oh, I miss it. And I can just leave it there. There's no draw to go back or return or make a comeback or any of that shit because of the fact that I've had all these other doors opened. You know, I don't think, you know, you look at a guy like Ricky Henderson who could never give up baseball. He didn't have any other doors open. There's plenty of fighters like Dan the Beast Severn, guys that we watched, you know, early on, the first three UFCs, who's fighting at 60. He's older than you are. Like, he can't stop. Like, no other door was mm. open. You know, and I think that's, that's another beautiful mm. gift that plant medicines have given me is the ability to, like, let me shift gears. There's a whole fucking world outside of this. And this was only going to be a short period of my life anyways. So I don't need to hold on to that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I just watched that uh, Michael Jordan documentary, uh, The Last Dance. Have you seen that? I, I haven't seen it, but I've heard a lot about it. Tell me about it. 
Well, it's a, you know, I think it's like five episodes about uh, his career. And, um, and it was really interesting because, you know, he keeps saying like, you know, look, my thing is win at any cost. That's it. That's what I'm all about. Right. And he's, you know, the whole thing is about like, he's the best ever. He's the best basketball player who's ever lived. And all the other basketball players from Larry Bird to Magic Johnson to Charles Barkley, they're all saying he's the best. He, no doubt. Right. But at least for me watching that, he was the least interesting person in the whole thing. I was much more interested in Charles Barkley and Dennis Rodman and Scottie Pippen and the other guys because they were men. Michael Jordan was just a winning machine. He was just driven. He had one focus, win. Whether it was golf or playing checkers before the game or poker, he had to win always. He always had to win. And it's like, dude, that that is not a mature, interesting human being, right? That's a sad, sad, like almost a machine. Um, so, yeah, it, uh, it, it kind of, uh, it was disappointing in a way. Not that I ever thought Michael Jordan was great, but listening to you talking about how you sort of looked at your career, you know, in, in the UFC, I get it. Like, yeah, it's not about winning. It's about learning and then moving on to other things and other parts of life. Uh, Michael Jordan just seems like such a sad, empty person. It, it, it was really, uh, it was interesting. I don't know if, if other people felt that way watching it, but that's that's where I, where it hit me. Yeah, automaton was the word that was coming up for me while you were talking about it before you said machine. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah. And think about that too, like, Whatever you know, Buddha talks about, the clinging and aversion, you know, aversion to the thing that you don't want, clinging to the thing you do want, both are on the same line yeah. of polarity, both cause suffering. You think about how that shows up in your life, the level of attachment to outcome that Michael Jordan carried, you gotta, yeah. you have to know that would have caused immense suffering. Like, I wouldn't want to fucking yeah. live that way. I mean, like, oh, yeah, it's yeah. easy to say, you know, you, you've never been great at anything or whatever. It's like, whatever. Yeah, but... At the same time, like the ability to just let shit roll off you, it's pretty yeah. important in the day to day. It's pretty important when yeah. it's not game day that I don't need to win at all costs. It's pretty important in a relationship that I don't need to win at all costs. That's a fucking huge yeah. one, you know? Yeah. It's a huge one. If you're one. winning your marriage, you're losing, right? <laughs> like, yeah. If you see it. You ever read a book called Finite and Infinite Games? James P. Cars. It's one of my all-time yeah. favorites. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant book. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of the best. Do you know that book? Uh, my, I, I have a friend whose mother studied with him at, I think, NYU is where he was teaching. Um, I think she. this is how I know this. She said that he was working. He, he had finished the manuscript for that book in Europe. And he sent it back to the publisher and it never arrived. It was lost in the mail. No shit. And so he rewrote the book um, based on his memory of what it was. Um, but he didn't, like the first book was like 300 pages. And so when he rewrote it, he 
he like boiled it all down to these little, you know, mini chapters and it ended up being a hundred pages or whatever it is. And so that's why the book is so brief and powerful that the first one got lost. <laughs> I, love, I love that. That's insane. I think of that though, yeah. like the, you know, the, the, the adage that everything's happening for you, not, not to you, you know, like that kind of mm. mindset to take that and understand like every, every shitty moment in life does pan out. And you could say that's just a positive thinking way to hack past things. And it's, but it, truthfully, if we're, as long as our trajectory is moving upward um, and you're not dead somewhere in a gutter, you can likely look back on your life and say like, oh yeah, that shitty circumstance gave me this gift or that taught me how to live differently. And then I, I started to enact something, some way of being that improved my life. That's pretty universal. I mean, I'm batting a thousand when I think of the challenges that I've come across and come out better. That's, that's certainly one, like, I love how small that, small that book is. You know, I think about like that. There's a great book. Yeah. Um, Boyd Vardy wrote the lion tracker's guide to life. Have you heard of it? Mm. It's yeah. phenomenal. Um, he's a lion tracker out of South Africa and, and also a medicine man who's, who's done a lot of work uh, with plant medicines. And, you know, his books, I think three and a half hours on Audible. It's a Rogan podcast, but it's mm. brilliant. There's just so many nuggets of wisdom layered into each page. You can't go two pages without being like, holy shit, what did he just say? And rewinding and reading back over it again. You know, and I think of that, there's... um. I love reading, so it doesn't matter if it's a big book or a small book, but when somebody does it right and it's concise, like there's a mm. lot of magic in that, a lot of medicine there. Yeah. All right, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, I just want to remind you that uh, this episode, as well as um, many others, are up on YouTube. They're on the YouTube channel, uh, Chris Ryan. So the only difference is uh, no intro. Some of them have intros, but no, no music. Um, and uh, but you can see me and Kyle chatting. Uh, the ones that are recorded remotely, I uh, recorded the the screen grab on those, and they're up on Chris Ryan on YouTube. So if you like uh, YouTube, if you're there and you want to check that out, please do. And um, in the meantime, I will turn you over to my mom and the great Carsey Blanton, who's on tour. If you want to see Carsey, um, check her out. Go to CarseyBlanton.com. She's going all over the country. And um, you can't go wrong. I got to say, a Carsey Blanton show is an intimate, powerful, unforgettable experience. So she's probably coming to a town near you. And if you're near Boise, I hope I'll see you. Uh, Friday night. All right. Take care. Okay, Mom. Uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay. In our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay, there you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say 
you're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say <laughs> When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day So baby, what's a big deal? If you wanna be free, say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms. And if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.